So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 21 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 21. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him and ask that He would help us in our study. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we are a people who are constantly searching the globe over for some sort of Savior. Even though we've found You, we still think there are other things in this world that can somehow deliver us from evil. But you are the only one who can do that. Lord, we pray this morning that as we come to you, your people who are sometimes wondering, that you would put us back on course, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would show us the true path found only in your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as I read through this passage, and I had my, we had our first full week of school this week at Murray High School, and one of the very first things I teach my students as a biology teacher is basically that science, as a rule, makes certain assumptions about things that the other areas of study don't make, just because it's science and they're unique to science. And it's a true statement. It's not a jab at the scientific community at all, but rather just talking about the way that they view the world, that they have to in order to do the work that they do. One of the assumptions that they make is that nature is ordered and consistent all the time, meaning that because everything that they see and they study is natural and has a natural cause, the supernatural but all doesn't enter into that because that's not what science studies. Science assumes that everything is natural and will always behave in a natural way, in an ordered and very consistent way, and therefore it makes it easy to study. That's kind of the assumption that they make. In other words, it's predictable and it's reliable. Of course, as a pastor, now I do get to take jabs at that, since the fall of man sin and sin's entry into the world, the only consistent thing about nature is that it is broken, and that it has fallen. The creatures that live within it are fallen especially the creature that was created in God's image. We are fallen too. We're not ordered. We're not consistent unless we're just consistently bad. Rather than order, there is disorder. Sure, there is structure to nature, absolutely. But there's the structure underlies the fact that there is a God that holds all things together by the word of his power. Not that it somehow holds itself together at all. It did not fling itself into order. In fact, the only thing that nature is ever trying to do is find itself out of order. Without God, there is no order. Yet the scientific community, along with the rest of the world, more and more think that they are pushing God out. They think that they can do that. And that they can replace Him with this new structure that fits this new, sophisticated, godless understanding of the world. In our text today, we're going to get a picture of what happens when God is left out of the equation. Babylon was seen as a beacon of hope by many of the surrounding nations. They were the one. They were the one that was supposed to overthrow Assyria. They eventually did, but then they didn't at first. They were supposed to do it. They were, they were overthrown. 
uh, Syria when they tried to rebel against them. So the surrounding nations were left wondering, okay, now that Babylon's out of the way, what, what hope do we have? And so Babylon was their hope. Rather than turning to God, they turned to a nation. They found out the hard way that nations rise and fall. And over 150 years from the time in our text, actually, the same nation, those same nations that looked to Babylon for relief will be looking for relief from Babylon. That's just how it goes. As we look at this text, we'll see the reaction of Judah as they watch Babylon's rebellion fail and how in many ways this mimics our own ways and how we feel sometimes when we're watching the world around us. I think it's very important for us always to be doing that. We'll consider this passage in three points. The watchman with bad news the watchmen with no news, and then when there are no watchmen. And so with that, let's look at the text. Isaiah chapter 21, we'll look at it in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 21, verse 1. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea... As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the, all the sighing she has caused, I, end, I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, Riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who cried out, Upon the watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered on the ground. O my threshold and winnowed one, when I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. The oracle concerning Duma. One is called to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes and also comes the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge... O caravans of Dedanites, to the thirsty bring water, bring meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tema, for they have fled from, from the swords and from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remainder of the of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few for the Lord the God of Israel has spoken. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just as a 
personal point here. This is probably one of the toughest passages I've ever come across in the Scriptures and been asked to preach. Uh, Definitely the toughest that we've had in Isaiah so far, at least from my perspective. A lot of things going on here in this passage, and a lot of things aren't necessarily clear. There's some division as to where we should go on the timeline as we are looking at that as far as the uh, what direction we should go. Should it go during the Assyrian's reign of the ancient Near East or should it go 150 years later during the Babylonian reign and the fall of Persia and Cyrus the Great taking over, uh, taking over Babylon? Is that what we're looking at here? After some study and some reading and putting it in context of the entirety of what we've looked at so far, I tend to think it's about the Assyrian reign and when Babylon attempted to overthrow them and failed, it flows much better with the text as a whole when you look at it that way. It does bring out to me that sometimes with Bible study, I think it's very important for us to just wait and listen. And I don't mean wait and listen in that we're waiting for God to say some secret thing to us that no one else has ever heard or anything dumb like that. But I am saying that we do believe that the Bible is living and active. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews. So I tend to believe it. So that we know that the Bible exposes our souls. And that God's Word has the ability to do whatever God pleases it to do. God's Word accomplishes the things that He sends it out to do. And so sometimes for us, for me, for any of us who are studying God's Word, sometimes... It may just be that we need to read it and wait and see what the Lord is going to do. And that was the case here. I read this passage several times a day, all week, and on Saturday I sat down and I was still completely perplexed as to what it was about. And so the Lord just needed me to wait a little bit. If you're working through a tough passage in your own study, that might be of some help. I mean, encourage you with that. It's you know, this is hard. And so sometimes we just come to those passages. A few other nations are mentioned here. Duma, which is probably refers to Edom. And Edom was the brother of Jacob, Esau, if you remember. And then there's Arabia, which would have been all along the Red Sea, if you can kind of picture the Middle Eastern area in your brain. And then there's the Red Sea and, or the, and the Persian Gulf. And so you kind of have Arabia, which would have been what is modern-day Saudi Arabia, basically. I th- I think that their oracle is going to, I think the oracles here kind of go with that overarching theme, and so I decided to take them and include all of 21 as one major thought. And so with that, we'll look there. The first point, the watchman with bad news. Look with me at verse 1. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the Negev swept on, it comes from wilderness from a terrible land. Babylon is referred to here as the wilderness of the sea. This is what a lot of commentators kind of come down on. Maybe because the the southern part of Babylon is near the right up against the Persian Gulf, which is sometimes referred to as the land of the sea. It uh, could be just a play on words, you know, to see how it would soon be turned into a wilderness because of Assyria. Or it could be the reference to the fact that it's relatively known for its fertility and abundance, and we typically don't think of fertility and abundance when we think of that area of the world, because I just think of desert. But there are areas that are very fertile because of the land around them and the waters near them. Whatever the case, there is a wind 
that comes howling through there from time to time from the south in this area known as the Negev, which is near where the Suez Canal is in Egypt and crossing over into Middle East, known for sudden storms and very strong winds. You actually see this a couple of times as you read through the Gospels and several times in the Scriptures. This violence that would soon descend upon Babylon was compared to one of those winds, strong and and sudden. Verse 2, a stern vision is told to me, the traitor betrays, the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. This is where a lot of the difficulty lies in this passage, because Elam and Media were there when Babylon was overthrown the first time by Assyria. They actually teamed up with Team Assyria. Not that Team Assyria needed a whole lot of help, but they did team up with them, and in 689 B.C. they overthrew the Babylonian rebellion. But they were also there when Babylon itself was finally conquered in 539, and they were the only conquerors there. And that was when Cyrus came in like 150 years later. But I think the rest of the passage and all the passages, again, that we've gone through seems to suggest the earlier of the two dates. So verses 3 through 5, this is where we kind of get into the, the meat of the passage. And this is, with, this is how Isaiah is dealing with this news that Babylon is going to be overthrown. And I think this is helpful for us. Notice how he's dealing with the fact that Isaiah is going to be overthrown. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I'm bowed down so that I cannot hear, dismayed so I cannot see. My heart staggers. He is struggling with this news. It's not uncommon at all to go through the rest of the parts of Scripture, and as you read through especially the major prophets and some of the minor prophets as well, after they get a word from the Lord, they're not usually altogether happy with what the Lord is telling them. And they kind of go back and they're like, Lord, how can I give this to the people? How can I say this to them? And they're anguished. They don't like the words that they have to give to the people of God. And so this has to be tough for him to hear that. Especially, it would have changed all the information that they knew. The people of Judah were really hoping that Babylon would be the one. Remember that time that we hoped that Babylon would be the one that overtook Assyria? Well, I've got some news for you. That would have been tough. And so the Lord tells him to set a watchman. And that watchman's job is to watch for any news. Whatever news comes, whether it's by donkey or horse or camel, however it comes, you need to watch for the news. And when the news finally gets there, what is it? Verse 9, fallen, fallen is Babylon. That's tough. All the carved images of her God, he has shattered to the ground. The worst news, the future destroyer has now been destroyed. So think about that for a minute. Isaiah, the people of Judah, they have longed for help in their struggle against Assyria. They've dealt with them personally. They've watched the northern kingdom fall. they watch watched all the kingdoms around them fall. And they wanted this pagan nation. They actually wanted this pagan nation, Babylon, with their pagan gods and all the whole thing, to help them. 
And they were sad when they fell. Now to be fair, Isaiah has shown sadness before at the loss of human life. It's not at all something, I mean, it's definitely something to be sad about. And there's likely some of that here as he was mourning for this, the fact that there was going to be so much loss and there was just loss all over the place in this time. But it can't be to not deny that there was a real sense in which the people of Judah and Isaiah just watched their Savior die. Their only hope. Reminds me of a viral video that's out. And this is no... This is no, uh, like me aligning with anything here, but the viral video of when our president was inaugurated and this woman was just in a crowd and she was just crying out. She was so upset that the president, that the current president was inaugurated that she just cried out. Her savior, the one that she had hoped was going to win, lost. And she was left with her current situation. I use science as an illustration in the introduction because if nature was ordered and consistent all the time, then it would be very easy to figure out, right? We would, we would have a nice little savior in nature. Medicine would always work the way that it's supposed to. Does medicine always work the way it's supposed to? If it did, you know, we'd, we'd all be well. Technology would make things better and it would always improve our lives. Is that the way it works? That our lives get better with every single breakthrough. Yeah, that's not the way that works at all. You figure by now the watchman would just be able to say, hey, the, the battle is won. Science is victorious or, or whatever. Technology is victorious or medicine is victorious. But in all those cases, no matter what it is, whether it's Isaiah mourning over the fact that Babylon was destroyed or, or that lady mourning over the fact that Trump was elected or any sort of mourning at all that looks towards another Savior that somehow is going to save us and doesn't look towards Jesus Christ, we're going to be waiting for a long time to find any other Savior. All those other Saviors, including the ones that that thought our current president was the Savior, all of them are no good. The only Savior that can actually deliver us from our enemies is Jesus Christ. The only one. Israel knew this. We've already read passages from this book that pointed forward to Christ. They knew that there was a Savior coming, and it was still tough for them to accept that this this pagan nation, Babylon, would no longer be able to help them. And I think this is one of the hardest things about living the Christian life. The fact that the world around us is constantly grasping onto anything that might possibly save them. And even to us, sometimes those things look promising. I mean, don't they? Just think of some of the things that we mentioned in prayer. We really do want to believe that there will be sometime, at some point, people in our government that are actually believers instead of people who just pretend to be. We really do want to believe that one day that babies will stop being killed. We really want to believe that. We really want to believe that one day we'll be able to teach Christ freely. To anyone and everyone. I want to believe that as a teacher. We want to believe that people will come streaming in off the streets to hear God's word preached. Instead of to be entertained. We really do want to believe that. I want to believe that there will rise up churches where people will serve God faithfully. I want to believe all these things. But all of those things are just pipe dreams. 
because of sin and death. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't hope in good things at all. But who do we cling to? Do we cling to the promise of these good things maybe happening? Or do we cling to Christ who is right now our good thing at the right hand of the Father? We cling to Jesus Christ. Again, this isn't to say that good things can't happen and that we as believers shouldn't work towards them. Absolutely, we should be working towards those good things. We should want more than anything to see God's kingdom come to this earth. Absolutely. However, Christ is the object of our faith, not the hope in this world changing. Christ is the object of our faith. He will save and he will do however he pleases. We need only serve him and trust in him. That brings me to the second point. The watchman with no news. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. The oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Seir, watchman. What time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. An interesting little passage here. Uh, again, Duma probably concerning the region known as Edom. Duma was one of the sons of Ishmael, actually. And uh, he probably settled in this region of the Negev. And so in so- the southern part of Judah, there was a big nation down there known as Edom. And again, they're actually a fairly large nation. Isaiah doesn't say a whole lot about them, but they get their whole own book called Obadiah. And then they get several chapters, I think, in Ezekiel as well. So Edom is not left off the hook at all. But here we have this nice interaction between the watchman and someone else calling to him from Edom. What time of the night is probably referring to the difficult times that they're going through or the difficult times that are ahead. And Edom knows their fate is closely tied to Judah. Absolutely, that's the case. It's always been that way since the birth of their two fathers. Jacob and Esau, closely tied together. Literally, one of them grabbing the other one's foot. And so they've been tied together. They're always going to be tied together, and they, their fates would continue to be that way. This is a good question. The watchman gives a good answer, if you're into cryptic things being good answers. He says in verse 12, The morning comes, and also the night. Think about what Scripture says about morning and night. Look at our passage from Psalm 30. We'll turn there in a minute. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You definitely get that idea here, but the watchman isn't finished. He not only talks about morning comes, but he also says, also, the night. There's a break. Morning's going to come. But guess what happens after morning? Every single time, night comes again. Just when Assyria gets destroyed, their destroyer, Babylon, comes and starts being the destroyer and does it all over again. And he says, come back again, as if to say, the answer will be the same tomorrow. If you come back, it's always going to be the same. If you're looking for salvation, you won't find it in Babylon You're not going to find it in Persia either. They're the ones that take over Babylon. You won't find it in the people that take over them. That's the idea. I think the message is clear for us too. There will be periods of mourning for us. There will be good times. There will be times of rejoicing. But if we see life as a roller coaster, 
constantly waiting for the good news and hiding from the bad, we might miss out on the fact that Jesus Christ, because of Him, all of it's good. Every bit of it. Turn with me to Psalm 30. A lot of Psalm 30 is printed there on your bulletin, so if you want to follow along there. I'll look at Psalm 30. If I can never find it. There we go. And I mainly want to look at verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. What has he done? What has the Lord done for the psalmist here? He has turned my mourning into dancing. He has clothed me with gladness. This isn't a one-time thing in which the wearer of gladness must put it on over and over as if the Lord putting on gladness or turning the morning into dancing somehow changes, as if the Lord could give you something that somehow wears away and you need to put it back on again continually. That's not what's going on here at all. This is a once and for all type thing. How do we know that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent? I will give thanks to you Forever. Not I will give thanks to you in the morning, but at all times. In Christ, we have been given a gift that lasts through the darkest of nights and is still there in the brightest of mornings. It doesn't go away, it doesn't fade, it doesn't any in any way lose any of its significance. It's always there, and it's always the same gift every time. And that gift is Christ Himself. It's something that is forever. And that work that He has done for us, Him taking our sins, nailing them to the cross, Him being risen from the dead so that we have then defeated death through Him, He has taken our enemies and He has removed them as far as the east is from the west. There's no longer any need for mourning. Only dancing. Now to be clear, that doesn't mean that we don't mourn at all. In fact, we should mourn. But why do we mourn? Mourning is a sign that we, as Christians actually, we we know the reason for mourning more than anyone. It's a sign that we know things aren't as they should be. Things aren't as they ought to be. It is a longing for the time that we look forward to when they will all be as they should be. We don't mourn as ones who don't have hope. We don't mourn as hopeless people who are hearing from the watchmen. Yep, not today. That's not how we mourn. We mourn as people who look forward to the time when there will never be night again. 
Until then, we continue to trust in the Lord. We continue to sing His praise for the good that He has done. And what good has He done? He always does good. All the time. And so the last point, when there are no watchmen, the last few verses, we have this oracle against Arabia, which again refers to the tribes along the Red Sea in Saudi Arabia, what is now Saudi Arabia. This, act, this area during this time actually served as a refuge for many who were fleeing the Assyrian uh, takeover. And you see that there in verses 14 and 15. To the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tema, for they have fled from the swords and from the drawn sword and the bent bow and the press of battle. You see this idea that they would flee into this area and this, the people there were, are, are still very hospitable and they would, they would take in people and they would care for them. Anyone who was a refugee from other countries or other nations that were being, that were being persecuted at the time by Assyria. But even their days were numbered. This area would also be overthrown. As you read through here, you get the picture that there's no place at all to turn from the wrath of God. And don't forget, it may be easy for us to read this and forget that that's, at all, that's what we're dealing with. Remember, Assyria was merely being used as a tool to dole out justice to Israel and the surrounding nations. God said, Assyria will be the hammer that I use to strike justice. And that's exactly what he did. Wherever they went, the Lord was with them. As odd as that sounds, judgment was usually complete because of that. There was no watchman there to send or to warn, but it was going to happen anyway. I think this is a very real thing for the world around us as we look at the world around us because we live in a world that is desperate for right answers and truths all the time. They may deny that idea. They may deny the idea that there even is a thing called truth. But they really do want it. They really do. Listen to music. Look at the art. Watch television. You see that there is a desperate need for truth even in the silly things of this world. They want to be able to get in their beds at night and think, finally, I can rest. Who doesn't want that? And it doesn't matter who they think should be in the White House or if they think the world is flat. Everyone desires peace and comfort and security. Everyone does. We all want that. The only problem is not everyone desires the only person who can bring that. And that's Jesus Christ. They not only don't desire him, but what does Jesus say that they do? They hate him. Jesus said they would because they don't want to come face to face with their creator. Because what happens when you come face to face with your creator? Well, we saw a picture of that with what happened when Peter came face to face with his creator. Away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For the world to come face to face with their creator, they're going to have to admit that they're sinful. They have to acknowledge their sin. And they won't rest anyway. It's increasingly difficult to be a watchman on the walls in these days proclaiming truth because we have to talk about sin. We have to talk about our Creator. We have to talk about how our Creator doesn't like sin. And we have to talk about how there's only one way to get around that. It's not making up saviors. It's turning to the only one, Jesus Christ. And it's not always an easy truth. But it's the only one the world needs. So in conclusion, let us be a people, us as Christians, 
who are only ever looking to Jesus Christ as for our salvation, for, for all eternity, but also for day to day. And then let us be a source of truth to a world that's seeking it. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you this morning, we come to you acknowledging that we don't always see you as our only possible option. We seek out other things. We want politics to serve as our Savior. We want science to serve as our Savior. We want just about anything to do that besides you. But you are it. And Lord, help us to see that. Help us to to know that. Help us to, to love that. And Lord, help us to be the watchman on the walls that is saying to the rest of the world, Jesus is the answer. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.